Well, this morning, the text we're going to actually take up is just verses 13 to 15, uh, and we'll be in this section that I read for quite some time, but I think it's good to hear it uh, in its entirety, and we'll probably do that several times more uh, as we go forward. Uh, But this morning, you'll notice that Paul takes up this idea of freedom once again, that we have been set free. And normally, when we think of freedom, especially the fact that we've been set free from the law of commandments, then we automatically believe, well, that freedom must mean we can do whatever we want. I mean, I think that's one of the things that people get so afraid of in teaching Galatians uh, with any sort of uh, uh, dogmatic claim that Paul is saying we are no longer under the law, is that we're afraid that if we're no longer under the law, that means that people will just simply do whatever they want to do. Of course, that is a form of freedom, or at least that's what we call it in, in our country, right? When this kind of liber, uh, libertine freedom where whatever I feel like doing, whatever I want to do, as long as I'm not hurting anyone else, that's true freedom above all other freedoms. And we see this play out in all kinds of distorted and weird ways. And so typically, uh, those of us who you know, want uh, God's word uh, to, uh, to, to have an impact not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. We want morality to at least uh, uh, be somewhat uh, d- dominant in our society, but especially we want it in our homes and in our church. We think, well, the solution to this kind of uh, libertine freedom is that we must then make sure that everyone knows what the law says and go back to that. Now, that seems, again, to make sense, except Paul has already told us that we're not under the law, and yet today he's going to quote directly from the law as a grounds and reasoning for why, again, we should live in a certain way. I think the one thing that should stand out to us as we open this text is if we have understood Paul correctly, if you get what he's saying and you see this here, you see it also in Romans 6, you should be asking a natural question. If everything you said is true, Paul then why don't people just do whatever the heck they want? Uh, If you have taught Paul in such a way where that's not the conclusion, then you haven't heard what Paul is saying. He understands that natural fear in us. When Paul says, you've been set free, every one of us in our inner inner school marm is like, no, 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 we can't be totally set free because then, you know, all the wheels will fall off and people will go crazy. Let's see this morning what we've been set free to according to Paul in Galatians chapter 5. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that we have freedom to get low. We have a freedom to get low. Paul begins once more on this theme, and he tells this church that has been called by the grace of God, as he said in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, you have been called, because of that grace, unto freedom. But now he wants to define what he means by that term. What are we free for? What have we been set free to do? Well, he wants to warn us that we haven't been set free in order to give an opportunity to our flesh. And that's normally what we think of when we think of freedom is, oh, great, I can indulge whatever desires I have. But what does that mean, that term flesh? We're going to see it used in juxtaposition to the Spirit throughout this whole section. And so it's important for us at least to get our minds around what he's saying And it's a difficult term because Paul uses it in many different ways in the New Testament. Flesh, when it's used in the New Testament, can simply mean your literal, you know, uh, 
skin and, 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 and meat on your body. The physical reality uh, that you live in. It can also just mean your humanity. But not necessarily sinful humanity, just humanity in general. Christ Jesus came in the flesh. And so the flesh, just in and of itself, isn't a problem. It's not sinful. But of course, it kind of uh, grows in its usage pretty naturally because those of us who do exist in flesh, all except Jesus since Adam, we also exist in flesh in opposition to what God wants from us. We live in this rebellious uh, um, disposition toward our Creator. And so it becomes to be used in this way where flesh is that which is in opposition to God, that which does what it wants to do based on its own desires against what God would have and desire. Um, A life that is bent in on itself is a life of flesh, one that is not bent toward God. And oddly, we see and we will see throughout this whole section, a life that is bent in on itself a life that does what it wants to do, a life that is promoted pretty heavily in our own culture, just do whatever you want as long as it's not harming anyone else. Paul says that kind of life destroys the person engaging it. That kind of freedom doesn't lead to freedom, he says. It leads to self-destruction and ultimately also to bondage. That is, of course, what makes sin so insidious. Sin isn't just a problem because it's wrong. I mean, it is wrong, and it is wrong because God says what we're to do, and we rebel against God. It's it's wrong for those reasons, indeed. But sin is insidious because it's destructive. It breaks us. And interestingly, the idea of do whatever you want as long as you aren't hurting anyone else is just a lie because sin always destroys outward. It doesn't just destroy the user. It destroys the community in which the person sinning lives. It breaks us and those around us. And so we haven't been set free to focus on ourselves and all that we want, to indulge ourselves and all that we could desire, or to act however we want, or, or to do what we think will make us happy, this kind of libertarian view of freedom. You can't just sin all you want, because sin is its own slavery. As We learn in Scripture, the one who commits sin is a slave to sin. But notice this odd paradox. Paul says, you've been called to freedom, but don't use your freedom to indulge your own flesh, but rather, in love, be slaves to each other. That's a a weird form of freedom, uh, not usually one that we would associate You have been set free, Paul says, to be a slave. And that doesn't sound promising or attractive at all, and that's probably why we don't focus on it much. Uh, You're so free, Paul says, that you can be a slave to each other no matter how great your station is in life. That whether you're, you know, a king or a prince or the president or whomever, you still are called to be a slave even to the least that are in your providential midst. And he says that this is to be done in love. Love as defined by this text that we have before us. As we will see, a self-giving, looking out for the other, a caring sort of love. 
Notice all of these things have communal overtones. In love, be enslaved to one another. Now, while Paul only brings this term to the fore one time in the section of Galatians, it's very clear by all the commandments that follow and all the, if you will, virtues and vices that are listed that he has community practices in mind. How will you live with each other? That these are, this is the way in which the household of faith is to behave. Notice we're not free in Christ from each other. You're not free to go it alone. It's not every man for himself, but instead it's every man for the other. And you see those two key words, love and one another. Love, you will find in this text, is both the motivation, it's what motivates us, it's what energizes us. The very fact that in love Christ saved us, in love God predestined us, in love God called and granted us faith, that love that gave His only begotten Son is our motivation, and then the manner of ethic that it motivates, you'll notice, is also love. It's what energizes us, this love, and it's our action. So in love, you'll notice, we serve one another. You see, we in the church have been called to be slaves to each other, which means you can look at everyone in this room, and you both should be fighting for the bottom. I mean, who can outserve one another in one sense, or who can uh, you know, lower themselves and other, the other might feel honored? How often do you go about your life even thinking in those kind of terms? Luther got it right when he said it this way, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is also a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And those are not contradictory. Notice for, for Luther, he's getting what Paul is, is pointing at here. Because you are totally free from the way of the law, you are totally free now to serve one another because that way of being in the world under the law is now over. That whole game has been set aside and that has changed, therefore, the way that you can engage with other people who are sinners. Now, that may not make much sense right now, but uh, in the weeks to come, hopefully it will. How does it make sense that because we're totally free from the law, that sets us free to truly love each other? Well, the second thing we want to see, if we are freed to get low, then I also want us to see that we're freed from the feeding frenzy. Uh, notice in verse 15, we're going, to go back to, we're going to go to the bottom of this text first, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul ends this section with the opposite of what he has just commanded in verse 15. He says, okay, in love, be slaves to one another. And then he's going to show us this is not what it looks like. <laughs> if you're doing this wrong, this will be the outcome. You bite and devour one another, and in so doing, you destroy one another. Notice the language. It's beastly. It's less than human. Because, of course, that is what sin does to us. It dehumanizes us. It turns us into that which we weren't created to be. By living according to the flesh, notice Paul says, you will become a cannibal. You'll have a taste for flesh. We will eat each other. You know, as they say, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, or as my wife used to say, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, which whatever, whichever one you prefer. 
for Paul, this way of behaving is living according to the realm of the flesh, not the realm of the Spirit. I mean, what is strange for us, but clear in Galatians, is that turning back to the law as a way of life, for Paul, is a return to the way of the flesh. I'm going to say that again because it's uh, strange. But Paul has told us time and again in this book to turn back to a life under the law is to turn back to a life according to the flesh. He's called it thus far going back to elementary principles by which you were enslaved. He says the law bore children to slavery, the same slavery that the flesh brings. He tells us, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now going to be perfected by, we would think he's going to say the law, but he says, are you going to be perfected by the flesh? Are you really going to go back to the law thinking that you can be perfected by the flesh, by being under the law? I mean, how can Paul talk about the law and flesh as being of the same kind or of the same ilk? Well, because for the Paul, the law... And the flesh are both old world norms. They're both old world standards. They're both ordinary, unresurrected realities. Things that belong to this age that will not go into the age to come. They both are passing away. They don't belong to the age of the spirit, the new creation age, which is eternal. So for Paul, the law doesn't conquer the flesh mainly because the law and the flesh operate in the same sphere. Now again, this is all going to be strange, but I promise we'll get there in due time. How is it possible? Because of what the law produces in the flesh. That's how it's possible. Because of what the law does when it encounters someone like you. The law shows us the good. It shows us what is right. The law shows us what is holy. There is no doubt about that. It is like God himself in its standard. And then the law says, this is what is true and good and beautiful and right. Now do it. It is unflinching. If you mess up, you owe. If you fail, you are indebted and must pay. There is a measure of deserving and undeserving. Either you deserve reward or you deserve punishment. And there's no two ways about it. If you do good, you get good. It is a this for that reality. You do the right thing, you get the right thing. You do the wrong thing, you will get punished. Everybody gets what they deserve under the law. Always. And every time. Well, when that reality hits the flesh, it produces some weird fruit. Because it hits a flesh that knows it's not measuring up to the requirements of the law. The voice of the law when it meets a sinner is always a voice of accusation, not of freedom. Even when you agree with the law, there's a a whisper behind it saying, you're not measuring up either. And it creates fruit like what Paul says here in his lists concerning the flesh. It produces things like rivalry. Because one under the law who knows they're not measuring up, has to ask themselves, well, who's performing better? And who's outpacing me? 
Who's getting more than me? And what does that say about them? And then what does it say about me? And therefore, we must be at odds with one another because I need to find a place in the world where I'm okay. It gives rise to one-upmanship because we're always in need of proving ourselves. That's why, you know, even in normal conversation, we can hear it come out like, oh, you thought that was bad. Listen to this. It's why competition, at least unhealthy competition, exists between us in the body of Christ. It's why we operate in our relationships on the basis of deserving and owing. Well, I did that favor for them last time, and I got nothing in return. And the gift that I gave them last year was like this, and they didn't even remember my birthday this year. You failed me, you owe me, you wronged me, and now I will get you back. It's why you're so desperate to be right and to be in the right. It's why you work so hard to prove other people wrong. Because if they're right and you're wrong, that says something about who you are in the face of the law. And the law is constantly operating on you, telling you you're not measuring up. And so you work as hard as you can to make sure while you may not be fully measuring up, you're at least outpacing that person who's really in the wrong. Maybe the curve will work in your favor. The law leads to an old world flesh behavior that shows itself most starkly and in its most ugly form in communal life. In life within families and churches and communities, that's where the law working on the flesh and through the flesh produces most of its ugly and destructive fruit. Things like biting and devouring, where everyone is seeking their pound of flesh so they can feel okay about themselves. That's why Paul will go on to say, hey, the works of the flesh are clear. And we hear that, and especially you know, in Christian circles, and when he starts out, we're like, yeah. I mean, Paul's finally getting at the bad guys. You know, sex, perversion, debauchery, drunkenness, orgies, all bad. And most of us are like, yeah, those sound bad. But then he says, Don't forget about strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy and enmity and you becoming conceited and provoking other people and being jealous of what they have. And we think, well, those aren't the big sins. I mean, the first ones he said, those are the big sins. And Paul says, no, the works of the flesh, they're all manifest. It all shows the ugly underbelly of what it means to live in this age under the law and expose who we are because of that law. And with the law, one needs to be justified, which means one needs to be okay. One needs to come under the bar of justice and hear the, the, the declaration, you're all right in the world. You're going to be okay. And the flesh that has fallen will fight like the Dickens to make sure that it's shown to be okay. Even when it's clearly in the wrong, it will find someone else to scapegoat on, compare to, be jealous of, blame, etc. The flesh seeks honor for self aggressively. Place and reputation and standing are of the utmost important. Why are they so important? Because if you need to be okay, these are sure outward markers that you're clearly doing it better than everyone else. People have noticed me. I've achieved many things in the world. I'm making my way in this world, and therefore I will be okay. But of course, all these things, your station in life, your reputation, your standing in a community, 
They're all insecure. They're always under contention, even in your own heart and mind. They're always under threat. They're under debate. They can be destroyed in an instant. I mean, one word of gossip could bring it all down. But if this is your worth, and I'm going to say this in the, the most literal way, you will fight like hell with the powers of hell to maintain it. You will assert and defend at all costs. I mean, what if you are outclassed or outperformed? What if someone else gets ahead? I mean, what if you're lied on or gossiped about? What if they slander you and you're, you get knocked down a peg or two? What if you don't ever get in the inner ring? What if you're overlooked? So we scratch and claw and bite and devour, and in so doing, we destroy ourselves by becoming like animals, and we destroy others by treating them as prey, as competition in the wild of this world. Notice the opposite of the command to love is this warning. Serve one another in love or you will devour each other. Serve each other or you will serve each other as dinner, one to the other. Well, if we're freed from the the feeding frenzy, notice we are so because we're freed by the law's fulfillment. I mean, Paul shows us the key to our thriving right in the middle of this text. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now listen here. Because the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the commandment for us, serve one another in love, is grounded in something. It's grounded in this, because the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this sounds wonderful. How are you doing? It's all you have to do. I mean, we need to consider, after all that Paul seems to say about the law, he gives us the way out of this dead end by saying, simply just do what the Old Testament summarizes as the whole law by loving each other, and boom, it's all done. I mean, what does it mean? When he says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, first of all, that that word there, obviously there's more than one word in that text, is a synonym for commandment. So they call the commandments in the Old Testament the ten words of God. It's just a command. So he says in this one particular commandment, this one particular word, the whole law is fulfilled. Is he saying that the whole law is summarized this way by this one commandment? I mean, Jesus said something very similar, didn't he? That there's two laws that summarize the entirety of the law, love God and love your neighbor. John tells us, the apostle and his epistles, that love God, and you fulfill the whole law, and then he says, and if you love your neighbor, well, then you love God. Uh, and so in some ways, you could say, yeah, I think that maybe Paul is just simply saying that this is what summarizes the law. But notice, he doesn't use the word summarize. He says, how is the law fulfilled? And of course, you've got to take into, my, uh, take into your, your mind the context of this letter. Paul is fighting against a group of people who have snuck into the church and put people he has cared for under the constraints of the law. And they've done it on this rationale. You need to take seriously the whole word of God and truly, 
give yourself over by becoming a true son of Abraham by keeping these particular commandments. And so Paul's challenging them, and he's saying, no, 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 I'm going to tell you about how the whole law is fulfilled. And you'll notice the word that he uses, again, is fulfilled, and it's in the, the I don't do this often, but it's in the perfect passive. It's, uh, it's, he's not saying the whole law will be fulfilled, or the whole law is going to be fulfilled once you do these things. He does say instead that the whole law has been fulfilled. In this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And that word fulfilled, of course, is used all throughout the New Testament. And if you look it up, you will see that it is most commonly used in one particular context. To talk about how Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament uh, shadows and pictures that have come before him. So it's not saying you will fulfill the whole law if you do this, but it is saying the law has come to its fulfillment. It is shown to be fulfilled in this one word being done, you will love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, consider how some of the Old Testament is revealed this way. We see in the life of Jesus uh, that he claims to be the very temple of the Old Testament. And then we look at the temple, okay, we see the shadowy form of the temple in the Old Testament, and we see that it's, at its very base, it is, it is where God meets with man, it's where God's presence is known in the world, and Jesus comes and tabernacles among us, and he says, I am the very temple of God. Which is why, for instance, the author of Hebrews says you can't go back to the temple, because Jesus is the temple. To go back to the physical temple is an absolute waste of time because it's been fulfilled. It, we have seen what the temple meant because Jesus came and revealed to us all that the temple was trying to show us before in shadowy form. I mean, you probably have seen this uh, in your own life at one time or another. If you've ever been away uh, from a loved one, especially a spouse or maybe a real serious uh, girlfriend or um, uh, one that you're pursuing uh, for marriage, and you have to spend time apart. Maybe you're in the military, you're away at college, you know, you have that picture by your bedside. That picture means a lot, you know. Every day you think, like, I can't wait to be reunited. Well, if in God's good providence you end up getting married, it would be real strange if you woke up every morning, instead of turning to your bride that's now with you, you turned to that picture and said, man, I really love you. You know, I can't wait to be with you. Uh, it was only there during its time of need, right? But once you have the real thing, the picture has to pass away. And so like things with the temple or with the sacrifices. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. To go and sacrifice any animal now in order to have your sins forgiven is a complete waste of time because the true sacrifice has been given. And it goes for almost everything, or actually it does go for everything we see in the Old Testament, whether it be priesthood or kingship, you name it. So Paul isn't issuing a command saying obey and fulfill the law, but he's stating a fact. The law has been fulfilled by means of this love commandment. So who fulfilled it? Well, I mean, we do fulfill that commandment, when we love our neighbor, that is for certain. Paul says so in Romans 13. Whoever loves fulfills the law. But reading it most straightforwardly has to lead us elsewhere. I mean, Jesus has kept this commandment. He's the only one that's ever kept it fully. He fills it up to everything that it ever meant to love your neighbor as yourself. 
He taught us what it meant, right? Oh, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Do good to those who spite you. So he begins to teach us more than the law ever taught us, even about its own nature, but not just teaches us, he shows us by his living what it means to love your neighbor, and he shows us most conclusively in his dying what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Which is why Paul says later, when we bear one another's burdens, when we take on someone else's load and say, I'll carry that for you, he says, then you fulfill the law of Christ. Then you're doing what the law that Christ fulfilled intended, taking that which was someone else's and owning it for yourself, making yourself burdened by someone else's problem, putting on you that which is not yours properly. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ fulfilled the law by busting through and beyond what the law had ever written. And when we join him in self-sacrificing love, we're obeying the law of Jesus beyond Moses, where Moses merely pointed to in shadowy form. Who is my neighbor? Well, Moses would tell you, your Israelite brother. Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, oh, don't you know? Even your mortal enemy, the Samaritan, if he loves the one that's next to him providentially, loves his neighbor truly. What is love? To do good, though, to those who you know and whom you owe love to. Jesus says, no, loving is laying down your life for your friends, but also while we are still enemies, Christ died for us. You heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy. A new world exists in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, created by a new work of God in the Spirit And a new ethic controls that new world and controls the citizens of that new world. And it's called the law of Christ, which, yes, fulfills the whole of the Old Testament law, but shows us things the Old Testament law never even dreamed of in its fullness. To go back under that law woodenly would be to miss Jesus and, according to Paul, even lose him. This has an impact on us. You and I have new identities based on grace and love. The love of Jesus who laid down his life for his friends. And this impacts your whole ethic and way of being in this world. And I guarantee you, it makes no sense. The law makes sense. This ethic is far more strange in that regard. Notice he'll go on to say, you who are spiritual, restore. You who have the Holy Spirit. You who belong to the age of the Spirit. Do these things. Notice what we're called to do as as he goes on in this text. Bear with one another in love. And so fulfill the law of Christ because our bearing with one another And our living with one another will be shaped, not first and foremost by the law, but will take on the shape of a cross where we lay down our lives for one another. Neighbor love looks different when it's hanging on a tree for enemies 
though it has done no wrong. Your dealing with one another will look different when it's no longer based on the law, what's fair, what's right, what I deserve, who's ahead and who's behind. As Luther said so plainly and rightly, God doesn't need your good works. And he doesn't. They've all been done by Jesus. But he goes on to say, your neighbor does. Your neighbor needs your good works. And these two ingredients of this new ethic undermine the old age and the way of doing things. These two things that are found because we've come under the grace of Christ. Our value system and our gaining and maintaining of worth have completely been turned on their head. If what the law says to us is be worthy, this new ethic says, I give you worth, not based on anything you've done or anything you're going to be able to achieve, not on any of your performance or your lack thereof, not based on comparison or how you are measuring up in the community. It's not based on your ethnicity or your wealth or your gender. There's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. God gives the same grace to all sorts of people in the community, And since grace is the foundation, all grounds for competition have to be removed. All of us came just as unworthily, and all of us were given the gift of salvation purely by grace, apart from any doing or achieving. So how do you try to one-up when none of you had anything to bring to the party to begin with? Our worth, you see, becomes found in Jesus only, and his work for us. The more you can live out of that new ethos, the more you can truly have love for the undeserving. I mean, how do you love people who do wrong things to you? How do you love people who just can't get it right? I mean, how do you keep loving people who have clearly blown it and don't show any great signs of change, but just by remembering who you are? At one level, you are that person, and yet Christ loves you infallibly and fully based wholly on grace and then calls you to step out in the same exact way towards others. Our value system of gaining, maintaining worth is turned on its head, but also this new ethic kills rivalry. In fact, the most honored person in the community will be those who are giving up on the quest for honor at all, who consider everyone else better than themselves, who honor others, raise up others, and are constantly lowering themselves. Those are the people that Paul says, look to those spiritual ones and follow them. I mean, look at what he says our work in the community is. When those are in error, a spirit of gentleness will restore them. Why gentleness? Because you're prone to the same error and you could get snagged in the same trap. Bear one another's burdens. Love goes and picks up what isn't their problem to begin with. Only the cross could motivate that. We're called to not talk about our own achievements, but we are called to make much of others as we see the fruit of the Spirit shown forth. Paul will say, do good to all, even the least deserving, especially in the household of faith. Others who aren't doing this well, you hear this sermon and you want to take it seriously, but you look around and you go, but they're not taking it seriously and they're taking advantage of me. And now I feel like I've, it's time to get you know, my, my revenge. Paul says, be patient with all. 
even the ones who haven't quite grasped yet this new way of living. And keep on going and enduring, not giving up on people. The law is fulfilled in this. One guy loved his neighbor as himself and gave himself for their sins. And that giving continued in grace bestowed upon us when the Spirit opened our eyes, granted us faith that we might behold Christ. And that grace and that love is now our ethic. And the law in its most wooden form under Moses can't keep up. It is a rescue love, not a counting and a requiring law. If Christ formed in us is the goal, according to Paul, that's what the Spirit is doing, that form will take on the form of a cross in this age. Humble service with our eyes out. It'll be a one-way sort of love, as we've talked about in the past. Asking the question, who can die the most? This is not a community of self-help, but it is a community that says to one another, I know the help I need, and therefore I'm willing to give you whatever you need. And Paul says, you are called now to walk in this love, a love that has fulfilled the law on your behalf. A for-you love becomes the basis and the rule of our whole ethic and way of life. May God grant us the grace to live and to remain there as we believe this gospel for us as well as for others. Let's pray.